Carl Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is a highly experienced broker, and since right now is a market absolutely made for brokers of his calibre and experience, in this podcast, Alistair Swift and I get stuck straight into the reality of the global specialty insurance market and the ultra-hard reinsurance market. Alistair is Head of Corporate Risk and Broking for Global Lines of Business at WTW and is CEO of Willis Limited, so has a view of the state of play in London that is hard to match. Listen on and you'll hear how netlines and greater syndication are the order of the day as insurers outwards reinsurance renewals stall, why the market is like an open pair of scissors, up where there are aggregation and therefore reinsurance related issues, and down where there aren't. You'll learn why clients have had enough, and alternatives such as captives and parametric solutions are booming, how the cyber market has stabilised and is ready to continue its exceptional growth, and why some insurers may choose to increase market share by absorbing higher reinsurance costs themselves and not passing them on. Alice has been on the show before, and it shows through in his confidence and the concise way he answers all the questions I throw at him. So listen on for an intensely concentrated description of the state of the market today, right from the eye of the storm, with someone completely on top of their brief. Enjoy the podcast. Alistair, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to be here. Right, we're in the middle of a very cold December, and it's quite a cold and, and hard and frosty market out there, particularly in the reinsurance sphere. Obviously, you're in the insurance and specialty insurance sphere. How's that reinsurance market affecting the specialty market? So I think, Mark, first and foremost, um, obviously the reinsurance market is going through some turbulence at the moment. The 1-1 renewals are happening very, very late, and we can see that playing out. There's a lot of uncertainty, therefore, from the insurer's perspective as to exactly what they're going to be able to do through 1-1. But it isn't, I'm going to say, as widespread as sometimes it's talked about, right? So there are areas of stress in the reinsurance market, and there are areas that There isn't quite so much stress on, and that stress tends to be around aggregation or aggregated perils or any form of aggregation. So whether it be natural perils, whether it be cyber, whether it be geographic in some way. Or war. Or war, yeah. 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 Those are the areas where there's real pressure in the market, and it's causing delays to renewals. It's making insurers have to consider what they will actually offer. So we're starting to see some insurers potentially just offer netlines. And also, they're starting to look at their aggregation more closely than they have done in the past. I mean, a lot of the market, their own outwards, is that a lot of it renewing itself at 1-1. And therefore, they just simply don't quite know if you've got a risk incepting in 2023. Is that affecting terms at the moment? Or they've got the ability to get those terms out to you? So I'll give you an example. We're renewing a particular cover for a client at the moment. It would normally be done on the insurance side of things for one one. By now, at this stage, we would have that placed. It's not placed yet because a lot of the insurers don't quite know what they can commit to. So what we're actually having to do is syndicate the placement even more than has been done in the past so that actually people don't quite have the same line size and so effectively you've got to use more of the market to get to the same point and get that certainty for clients that's everything's taking a little bit longer if the reinsurance market is delayed the insurance market ends up being delayed and from a client perspective that isn't great because most of them would like the certainty now so it's more of a capacity issue than a price issue 
I mean, obviously, when there's capacity issues, there's pricing issues. Uh, when the tail end of the slip realises that they could charge a lot more, and you might be able to get it home. Absolutely. But it's not, you know, I like to think of it as a sort of open scissor market. So we've got certain lines where pricing is actually coming down, and we've got other lines where pricing is increasing, and it's navigating that for your clients is the really important thing at the moment because you've absolutely got to be aware of where the market is in particular areas. So it goes back to that point that we just mentioned. Aggregation issues, chances are in some shape or form, pricing will be moving up in those areas. Non-aggregation issues, probably find the pricing's moving the other way. So the good news is that probably in DNO, certainly that's the most widely reported. DNO, definitely. You know, we've seen big reductions in that market in some areas, you know, up to sort of 30 points coming off those areas. Even the UK retail book. If I think across the UK retail book, we've been seeing sort of 20-point reductions on those programs as well. So that's going to be very different, though, to a Florida property account, which probably you're, at the moment, having to use a lot of capacity out there to get it placed. And in terms of bundling and unbundling, are you finding that a lot of underwriters coming back to you, for example, look at, say you mentioned Florida, they're saying, and starting to want to sublimit Florida or to have a, some kind of event limit on Florida or particular geographies or aggregation issues that they're worried about? The place where we're seeing the biggest issue from an aggregation perspective is actually Russia, Ukraine and yep. uh, Belarus, right, actually at the moment. Most people know what their aggregates are in somewhere like Florida, right? They've been looking at it, they've been monitoring it for years and years and years. Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, when you think of the marine market, war, to your point, that's where you sit there and you go, people haven't necessarily had to be as conscious of what their aggregate exposure is in those areas. And that's where they're having to put the focus now. And presumably it's harder to place anything that's a kind of composite cover. You've got to look at things, sort of break them down to their constituent parts. Yeah. And you're seeing things being placed with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus excluded and then having to place standalone programs for those areas. Going back to what you said about having to syndicate more because of more smaller line sizes than you would have had before on standard placement. When we last spoke at the beginning of the year, we were talking about a flight to quality in underwriting, obviously because those underwriters getting backed by their insurers will be able to continue to offer terms and be out in the marketplace. Does that mean that things changed? Because you might have a flight to quality, but if that leader can now only write 10% line instead of a 20% line last year, you'd like to fly back to that quality. But does it mean that you're going to have to go to all the tail end charges that you wouldn't necessarily have wanted to place with? Some I think it's a flight to more quality. <laughs> so one of the areas that I think is going to be quite interesting is obviously in the past, quite a lot of MGA capacity and MGU capacity has been used on these programs. It will be interesting to see whether or not insurers are quite as willing to give their balance sheets up to MGAs and MGUs or whether or not they're going to want to retain that capacity for themselves and use that themselves to underwrite their own portfolio business. So I do think we've got to be quite conscious of the fact of making sure that we're looking and we're placing with carriers who have the balance sheet, who have the capability themselves, right, to retain risk. And, you know, we're seeing that. We look at what some of the major insurers have done. They are all retaining more risk now from a reinsurance perspective than they have done in the past. That's great. They've got the capability. They've got the balance sheets to do that. Some others won't have that ability, and it may well lead to some people exiting certain areas of the market that they've been in traditionally. Right. You're much more keen as a broker to be talking to the person who's actually holding the pen. Talk to the organ grinders rather than the monkeys. I'm not sure I would put it like <laughs> that, but you can. No, no, <laughs> yes, I don't want to put words into anyone's mouth at all. When we last spoke, 
it was clear that insurance was the growth area. We'd had this massive correction over the last years. And reinsurance wasn't really in the picture. And of course, reinsurance has really, really been playing catch up, particularly in the last couple of quarters. There's now this hard market and this real resolve from reinsurers to remind the market that they are a necessary part of the food chain and that you can't be taken for granted. Is now the time that you feel the absence of that reinsurance arm within WCW? No, not really. So the information is very available, not actually what is happening in the reinsurance world. So it's not as though you're missing some information loop, right, that is going to be beneficial in some way from a client perspective. For us, the most important thing is that we stay very close to the insurers and we're in good dialogue with them around what they're looking at doing. And as long as they're getting good feedback around what's happening with their reinsurance programs, normally they're very happy to share that with us so that we can take that into account with what we're doing on behalf of our clients. So I don't think we miss it from that perspective. If I think of it from a growth perspective, I think, again, it'll be interesting to see. You know, there are areas of pressure in the reinsurance market at the moment. There will be growth in those premiums for sure. What that will transpire into, though, from a point of view of growth in revenues for reinsurance brokers, I think it's going to be quite interesting. And we'll be looking closely at our competitors' results in Q1 and Q2. Is that because of the sort of finite budgeting that people have? They can only spend so much. Yeah, and how much is actually going to be able to be pushed down to the clients, um, the original clients? How much will be retained by insurers? This is all up for debate at the moment, and you're seeing people prioritise spend, no different from what we've seen with direct clients. At the end of the day, insurers will look at prioritising their spend. They don't have unlimited budgets, so they'll just be more conscious around what it is that they spend that money on. When we're in a situation where there is a real fear that clients might not have the full cover available to them that they wish to purchase, Often it has been the role of the broker widely to go and source new capacity at times like this when there's a potential for failure in the market or dislocation in the market. Do you have that capability now, now that you don't have that reinsurance arm? Can you go and formulate some of those new, in the way that Bermuda, different waves of Bermudian capital would have been formed in the past? Do you feel that that's another string that now missing from your bow? No. Yes, we do have the capability to still do that. We obviously still have some contractual obligations that don't allow us to do certain things within the sort of reinsurance Which world. Is, I suppose um, sourcing new capital probably isn't. Sourcing new capital is not one of them, <laughs> right? So we do have the ability to do that, and we do still have the capability internally to do that and think creatively around how you would bring new capital to the marketplace. What's been quite interesting in certain areas is you're starting to see I'm going to say a significant rise in the number of sort of parametric deals that are being done, which are in certain times, you know, accessing different forms of capital than have traditionally been used. Yep. Do you think this is going to be a big spur for parametric? I think you'll see a lot more of them coming through. You know, clients want that certainty of result. And as you're looking at if capacity isn't available from a traditional perspective, people may well look at more parametric type deals. Absolutely. This certainly does seem to be new capital was announced very recently. In that space. Where's the client in all of this at the moment? And your clients, they've had a pretty tough sort of last three or four years with readjustment in pricing, perfectly necessary, but still painful for them if they hadn't necessarily expected to see it coming. How are they feeling now that the next part of the story is, I'm so sorry, but all the insurers have fixed their pricing and now the reinsurers have to fix their pricing too. So sorry, you're going to have to pay up again this year. 
Are they saying, I've had enough? <laughs> well, unfortunately, in lots of situations, they can't say, I've had enough, because they have to still buy insurance, which is, I think, in certain circumstances, a frustration for them. But bluntly, I think clients are very frustrated with how the market is responding. Every time there's an issue, we can't all of a sudden decide we're going to exclude things or change things. Somewhere in here, we have to provide a sort of consistency of product for those clients. And I think, yeah, I think they are frustrated. You know, rate on top of rate on top of rate on top of rate at some point gets to breaking point. And when that happens, I think you'll see clients potentially, if they have the capability, looking at assuming more risk themselves. And once it goes, it won't come back. Consequence to that, is there a greater interest in captives? Obviously, you've got global captive capability within your group. Presumably, captives must be booming at the moment. Our captive department haven't been busier, right? So absolutely flat out on that side of the business. And we expect that to continue through 23. If you see a slightly dislocated market, that's absolutely the time where clients will look at exploring what they do, either through captives or other forms of self-insurance. Is there a sense that from clients that some of the insurers, having rebuilt their margins, perhaps they ought to absorb some of this margin compression or be able to take it to say, I know your reinsurance is going up a little bit. Can you absorb that? Because, you know, you restored your margins, haven't you? So I think there is an expectation and I actually think some insurers will, right? So I don't think that we're going to see everything that's happening in the reinsurance market play out into a change in pricing across every line of business that an insurer is offering. From what we're seeing at the moment, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, there are still product lines where the pricing is going down. There's others where it will go up. And if you're a client, you're going to look across the suite of products that you're buying in your aggregate spend, and you'll be being very careful and thoughtful around what it is that you buy and where you buy it. And one of our jobs with our clients is going to be to make sure we help them navigate through that process, really look at risk in its most holistic form. And then really look at what it's efficient for them to transfer into the insurance market and what they should be retaining themselves. So do you think this is a good time for some of those top underwriters, those insurance underwriters, to say, you know, this is a good time for me to show a lot of willing and, and absorb as much of that reinsurance cost and not pass it on to clients? I'd love them all to do that. Unfortunately, I don't think they, you know, not necessarily all of them will, but there will be some that will lead in this space. And as a result, you know, potentially we might see some people increase their market share in certain areas to the exclusion of some others who are more reactionary. About inflation, it's everywhere. Obviously, it seems to be moderating, but it's moderating at a very high level. Are you seeing that really coming through into that core loss ratio, probably where it's going to be of most worry to most people? So I think lots of different aspects of inflation, right? So you just think of it from the point of view of what is there from a property asset perspective. You think of it from a supply chain perspective, it's affecting business interruption losses, it's affecting the quantum of losses. As we sort of look at paying those out on your sort of property and business interruption policies. And similarly, though, you're seeing it from a social inflation perspective as well. So you're seeing awards increase as a result. And yeah, it'll start coming through in people's loss ratios without any doubt. The great thing with it is, though, is we do have a pricing method, or most insurers do, that is, is against the underlying exposure. So if there are inflationary increases in underlying exposures, that normally means in some shape or form, there'll be a premium adjustment that is associated with it. Not a rate adjustment, 
right? And I think that's where people sometimes so more, get more confused. Sort of turnover adjustments and stock Absolutely. throughput adjustments, etc. Yeah. yeah, there'll be adjustments to the premiums on policies that should benefit insurers and the marketplace as a whole. And I think that's going to be one of the factors that will play through. We saw it play through this year. It will continue, I think, in 23. And my one advice to all clients is make sure that you've got your assets absolutely correctly valued because it's vital for your recovery and to make sure that you're declaring the right values on your programs. Because with higher inflation, then the danger of underinsurance is so much more prevalent. One thing we haven't spoken about specifically is cyber. This time last year, when we last spoke, you said if you had any resource, new resource, you'd allocate it towards more cyber brokers. Is that still the case? Absolutely. Yep. Anybody who wants to come and work in cyber, please give me a call. <laughs> we are still looking at recruiting very heavily in that space. We still have massive appetite for it. We see our clients still having appetite for it. There are new areas of the world where people are looking at buying cyber. Yes, there have been some issues this year from the point of view of how you know we deal with systemic risk across the cyber market. Most of those issues seem to have now been resolved and we're still seeing clients continue to buy it. So it's been a bit of a flattening from pricing perspective. You know, it obviously increased quite dramatically, but that seems to have flattened off. It's a far more stable market than it was six months ago. But from my perspective, I still see it as a huge growth area for us from a business perspective. But within that wider insurance environment where anything that has aggregation problems is coming under a lot of scrutiny, has that sort of been solved or not? Are reinsurers becoming much more comfortable with the modeling and the view of aggregation, of systemic aggregation that you have within cyber? I think because some of those systemic issues have been dealt with from a wordings perspective, there is more comfort from a reinsurance perspective than there was in the past. still think, though, that it'll be one of the areas where reinsurers will look very closely at what they're doing and the aggregation risk that is there. But I do think you tend to see that most of that was dealt with in 22. So it's more been because of exclusionary language rather than getting more comfortable with the risk itself? I think that would be fair to say, yeah. So this is therefore a market that can grow? It's got capacity to grow? It still can grow and still is offering a product that clients want. And the concern with it was that you were going to have so much excluded that actually the product itself became valueless to clients. That hasn't happened. And so it is still seen by most or lots of clients as being a very valuable way of managing the risk themselves. Obviously, we've been talking about this hard reinsurance market. One of the notable factors sitting sort of from a high distance away from it and looking down is that London seems to have done quite well out of it. We've had capital raising in London. We've had obviously new businesses at Lloyd's that are all growing very, very fast and not necessarily a huge amount of capital being raised elsewhere. Is London sort of upping its game in this particular time? Upping its game or catching up, right? I mean, I think London's been in a sort of pretty fallow place for a long period of time from the point of view of raising capital and you know increasing what it does from a market share perspective. In fact, you could say it's maybe shrunk its market share over the last few years. So it's nice to see that capital is being deployed here and you know that the market is back into growth mode. And quite a lot of work's been going on on these London market reforms in the past year with, with this core data record. How's that going down with clients? Is it something they just don't notice until things actually improve? So from a client perspective, I don't think they care. Right. At the end of the day, what they're interested in is making sure that they have an efficient product that is delivered 
to them in a timely manner, right? And there's an expectation that that is what we will do as a marketplace. It hasn't necessarily been the case. So everything that we're doing in this space as a market to improve it, I think will be beneficial to our clients. But the expectation is there that this is just something that we do from a client perspective. I welcome it. I hope that we can do it even more speedily than we currently are. But at the end of the day, I don't think that will be a deciding factor for lots of clients you know, as to whether or not they're placing business in the London market. They'll believe it when they see it and they Basically, have high expectations. Yeah, and they anyway. have high expectations, yeah. In the last year, it seems that certainly the mood music around WTW has improved a lot. It's like putting words in your mouth, but you seem to be more on, on the sort of offense mode, using more American parlance, offense mode rather than defense mode. I think when we last spoke, you were probably more in defense mode. Is there a sense that things are stabilizing, that you're starting to move forward and you can put what happened in the past behind you? Yeah, massive shift in the business, right? So we were very clear with what it was that we wanted to do post the potential merger with Aon. And that has been, I think, stood us in good stead. As we've gone into the year, we've got that clarity of view, clarity of vision of what it is that we want to be as a business, how we're going to execute. And people have seen that. And that gives people confidence that actually WTW is a great place to come and work and have a career. So we're now a net positive recruiter of talent in what is a you know, difficult marketplace for recruiting. And that will continue into 2023 and beyond because the one clear thing for us is as a business, we are going to grow and we are very firmly in growth mode and we'll continue to look and pursue those investments that are going to support that growth. There's certainly terms of the perception from the outside was, you know, maybe a year ago, I've seen press releases from other brokers and lo and behold, they were hiring long-standing WTW colleagues of yours. And certainly in the last six months, I've seen a lot of that talent either returning or certainly being on the front foot, hiring very experienced staff from other brokers. Look, we will continue to do that and we'll continue to bring talent in from outside the industry as well. I mean, to me, it's not just around us recirculating people from within the industry. It's also around us attracting people from outside of the industry. I'm very keen that we look very broadly from the point of view of where we cast our net. And so the ones that grab the insurance headlines are when people move from within the industry, but we're actually looking across all industries from a recruiting perspective. And that's going very well and proven very successful from the point of view of clients. I mean, the key for us is we truly believe as a business in specialization. And for those people that want to operate on a global platform, want to be specialists in what they do, WTW is a great place to be. And I suppose you've still got headroom to grow because you're not Absolutely. quite as big as some of the other two. Not all about size. In the wider broking world, there's so much private equity money or venture capital money available to entrepreneurial brokers. Obviously, you can't necessarily offer them the same sort of rewards. Obviously, it's not going to be anywhere near the same level of risk either you're offering them. So what's your pitch to hang on to that kind of talent that you think is at risk, particularly in this environment of walking out and starting up their own business tomorrow? Yeah, look, for every broker that succeeded in that space, I could probably name two or three that have failed. And we're seeing a bit of that go on at the moment as well. So I don't think that it's, as you describe them, these entrepreneurial brokers are always the wonderful success that they might talk to be. There will be some that will be successful and there'll be quite a few who aren't. I think the one thing at WTW that we offer is we offer a very clear platform and a very clear culture that we want colleagues to be part and parcel of. And it is around the individual and being able to make the most of themselves within this organization 
And that to us is key. And people see that. So people come, I think, to work at WTW because of the culture that we have as a business, not because we're backed by some PE firm that will trade out in five years' time for the next lot of PE, maybe. All right. And I think we're seeing a few more maybes at the moment. And one last thing I want to talk about is obviously we've been, the last couple of years we've been talking about ESG a huge amount. And we definitely spoke about it last time you were on the show. Do you think we're getting anywhere nearer? It seems to be more noises now at regulatory levels that we might get some kind of core ESG standards that we can all work to. Is your gut feeling, obviously, you're operating very high level within the London market. Are you getting a feeling that we're going to be getting a grip on some of this in good time to sort of train our clients to be able to send us some of the data that we're going to be asking them for? So I was talking to a client literally about this the other day, and they said, please, please, as a marketplace, get yourself organized. So we're not having 15 different questionnaires from 15 different markets with... 25 different questions, right? So, Because presumably these clients are also, every time they're going for a loan to their bank, the bank's having asking to do the same questions, questions as well. Yeah. Right? So yeah. how can we get to the point where there is a consistent set of questions that is going to be used across the marketplace is something that you know I think we, it benefits all of us in this marketplace to work through and come up with some core standard right, that we're going to use and we're going to request from our client base. I hope we can organise ourselves as a market that that is where we get to. Good. So are we optimistic we'll see some sort of market-wide initiatives or something happening? It's always difficult to get market-wide initiatives going, as you know, <laughs> right? But I would hope that there is consistency from insurers and brokers in what they're asking our client base in the future. Yes. Well, we'll hold you to that for the next year and we'll see where we've got to. But it just remains for me to thank you so much for your time. It's a really busy time of year and much more busy than it would normally be, it sounds. So good luck with all of that and come back on the show soon and give us an update. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>